So I grew up in a state called Wisconsin. Some of you have heard of it. Woo! Wow, there's a few. More than I thought there would be. And growing up, my mom made this, uh, this just a wonderful chip dip. Uh, we had a really creative name. We called it Awesome Dip. Uh, not super creative. But we actually had like an earthenware like pot that we, it was dedicated just to Awesome Dip. I mean, it was that kind of significance in our life. I absolutely loved it. It was sort of like queso, but Scandinavian queso. So mostly cheese and nothing spicy, if that makes sense. <laughs> right? And we had it all the time when I was a kid. It was the staple of parties and celebrations. It was wonderful. And so this year, our family decided that we would make Awesome Dip to have while we watched the Super Bowl this year. And so we, got, we contacted my mom, and we got the recipe. And it turns out it's like the most Midwestern queso ever. It's basically one can of Hormel. Write this down. One can of Hormel chili with no beans and, and then just a big block of Velveeta cheese. <laughs> well, yeah, there we go. You're one supporter. I love Velveeta, but to call it cheese is an overstatement. In fact, they can't call it cheese. They call it a cheese product. And it turns out we're cheap, and so we didn't even pony up for real Velveeta. We bought generic Velveeta. It was called melting cheese, which you know isn't food, right? It's probably like a petroleum product. At any rate, uh, we made it, and it was great. In fact, as I remember it, it was awesome living up to its name. So awesome, in fact, that I ate it all afternoon. I ate it through the game. I ate it through the evening. My last memory of the day, in fact, was taking the cold spoon out of the dip and cleaning it off before I put the leftovers in the fridge. And I learned two really important things that day. The first was don't ever post anything about the Super Bowl halftime show on social media. It will be misinterpreted. Unrelated. Secondly, awesome dip is awesome until it's not. And for me, that was about 2 a.m. the next morning when I was living in the aftermath, the dark side of awesome dip, (laughs) right? And I spent the next couple of days just feeling a little off from what was clearly sinful, gluttonous appetizer consumption. It's no fun living in the aftermath. The aftermath of regret. And I know that queso is really pretty minor. But I know what it's like to live in the aftermath of regret. And I'm guessing that many of us in this room do as well. The aftermath of the one night stand. Or the aftermath of an abusive marriage or relationship. The aftermath of one really, really fun night that ended up changing your whole life because of one dumb decision. The aftermath of that photo you sent your boyfriend because you trusted him, and now the whole school has seen it. The aftermath. The shame, the embarrassment, the self-loathing, the self-blame, the feeling in that moment like you're never going to be okay again. It's the aftermath. I mean, maybe none of those describes you, but I think all of us have probably in little or small, I mean, big or small ways experienced what it is to live in the aftermath. There's a place to write this in your notes. Oh, I'm sorry. We're not there yet. (laughs) Whether it's big or small ways, we've lived in the aftermath. Whether it's our own sin or the sin that others have done to us. We've all lived in that moment. Last week, our middle schoolers at snow camp heard this message from Caitlin. She said, sin is fun until it's not. And you could dismiss that. You could say that sounds simplistic or that sounds kind of old school. But when she said it, she then asked the room. She said, who in here over the age of 25 can attest that this is true? And all of the adults 
raise their hands. If you've lived any amount of time as an adult, you know that sin is real and we damage one another and people damage us. We've all been there. There's a place to write this in your notes. Now's the time. Sin always has an aftermath. Sin isn't a popular topic. It's not something that we like to necessarily talk about. It can easily feel like we're judging when we, when we talk about sin in others. And we can feel like it's self-blame or shame when we talk about it in ourselves. And yet scripture has a lot to say on the subject of sin. And so today we're diving into this new series. We're going to walk through the book of Joel. And Joel is really the story of the people of God living in the aftermath. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Joel. If you don't have a Bible with you today or have one at home, we'd love to send you home with one. There's a stack of them at the back of the room. You'll find the book of Joel about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. It's at the end of the Old Testament. It's one of what's called 12 minor prophets. And they're called minor prophets not because their message is minor, but because their books are short. This one's very short. It's only three chapters long. And it's easy read in that sense that it won't take long. But it's packed with these really vivid, amazing images. It's a complicated book because it's it's actually ancient Jewish poetry. And so a lot of the language that it uses sounds strange, sounds foreign to our ears. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit over the next couple of weeks. And frankly, there's a lot that we don't know about the book. We don't know, for instance, when it was written. We don't know what the specific issues of sin were that Joel was addressing in the people of God. And yet we know that even though we don't know much about it, we know that it's quoted throughout the New Testament by Peter and Paul and others. We know that this little tiny book that we know so little about has been foundational in how the church has come to understand the other prophets, to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives, to understand the day of the Lord, to understand the end of times, all these sorts of things, all from this little minor book. It's a wonderful book full of devastation and hope. So let's jump in. Joel 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And that's pretty much all we know about this prophet. His name and that he was the son of Pethuel. Nothing else. But like all the other prophets, he's received a message from God for the people of God. Verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So, right there, we know that Joel is different than a lot of the other prophetic books. Typically, in a prophetic book, the prophet comes and he has a message from the Lord, and it's a message of warning. He's saying, Repent, turn from your ways to prevent this thing that's going to happen, this judgment of God that's going to happen, this catastrophe. But here at the beginning of Joel, it's different. Apparently that thing has already happened. And the people of Israel are living in the aftermath of a terrible cataclysmic disaster, living in the aftermath of their sin. They're trying to figure out what to do, what to do next. And typically in the Old Testament, this language of hear, O Israel, it's used to say, like, to remember the good things that God has said. Remember that God saved you as slaves from Egypt. Remember that God is faithful. Remember that the Lord your God is one. But here it's different. It's saying, tell the next generation and the next generation and the next generation about this catastrophe that has happened to us. This disaster that they've experienced is historic. It's where we get terms like biblical proportion from. 
No one had ever heard of this kind of disaster before. But what happened? What was this disaster that they were supposed to remember from generation to generation? Next verse. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So there's this army of locusts that has come and has, has eaten everything. And in a sense, that's catastrophic. I mean, locusts are horrible, but this is the Middle East. Locusts would have been very common. This is sort of one of the risks of being a farmer in the Middle East. Catastrophic? I, apparently. You see, Joel, the author, the poet, lets us know just how big this is by using this device of repeating this phrase. It was very common in Hebrew literature that they would use repetition to, to give emphasis. So he says, what the one left, the next eight. And what they left, the next eight. And what they left, the next eight. Locusts are brutal. One description I read uh, of a locust attack in the Middle East reported a locust swarm covering 2,000 square miles. They said the swarm, they estimated that the swarm was 24,000 billion insects. And I read that and I wondered, wouldn't you just say 24 trillion at that point? <laughs> 24,000 billion. But at any rate, I wasn't there. Another story out of California, which was much more, uh, much more recent, said in one county, 200,000 acres were covered with locusts over every square inch of the county. They said in some places they were stacked too high. The commentator said this, what the locusts don't eat, they cut off for entertainment. In the wake of the insects, fields are left bare as the floor. Apple trees are stripped of every leaf and rose bushes are consumed through the green bark. During the same attack, a farmer lamented that a hundred acres of his bean field had been completely cleared by the hoppers. Joel's account is not hyperbolic, but factual. And, and these reports that we're looking at that are just massive are still just one wave of these insects. What Joel describes is four different waves, wave after wave after wave after wave, so thick that it blocked out the moon and the sun and the stars. Wave after wave of destruction. It's like a tornado followed by an earthquake, followed by a drought, followed by a fire. There's nothing left. It's unthinkable. And Israel was now living in the aftermath of the locust effect. Israel's left looking around and wondering what to do, trying to piece together where they should go from here. I think it's a lot like how some of us have felt at times in our life when we are living in the aftermath. I remember now several years ago getting a call from a friend, um, a good friend, a couple that we were in a small group with, and he wanted to get together. When we got together for coffee, he, he told me that his wife had found the hotel receipt in his pocket when she was doing the laundry. And it was a receipt for a hotel room that he had gotten as part of the affair that he was having. And so he wanted to get together and, and to talk about it. And I remember just through tears, him saying, I don't know what this means. I mean, he told me about her reaction. He told me, he said, I, you know, I don't know what this means for our marriage. I don't know what this means for our kids. I don't know what this means for the people at church who, where I'm an elder, where I'm a leader in the church. And this is going to come out. And I watched him in that moment and over the next several years of his life live in the aftermath and continue to live in the aftermath. I watched as his marriage dissolved. I watched as his faith dissolved, his role in the church dissolved. The aftermath took over 
and took him. I think that's a picture of where Israel is at in this moment. Their whole lives have been turned upside down and they can't make sense of any of it. They don't know what's happening or how to move and how to do what's next. And to that, Joel says these words. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, you drinkers of wine, because of your sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Wine is this picture of joy. It's this picture of celebration. It's a picture of the exuberance of God's blessing. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs are of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. There's a place to write this in your notes. Sin steals our present. Their crops, their livelihood, all of that was stripped away in these waves of destruction. There's no food, but it's more than just a famine. The locust effect has taken away more than just their food. It's taken away their way of life. It's taken away their sense of self. It's taken away their security. Notice that when Joel describes this, it's more than just they ate all the grapes and the leaves. It says that an army of locusts has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. It's interesting that he would include that detail. One commentary I read said that locusts don't even like fig trees. This is evidence of that thing we talked about. They did it for sport. I think this is included, at least in part, to say that they've destroyed everything to the point where they're just going to destroy anything that's left, even if they're not going to eat it. It's that kind of force of destruction. But I think it's included for another reason as well. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this image of the fig tree and the grapevine were a symbol of much more than just the agricultural society. They were a sign of security and prosperity for an individual. The IVP Bible background says it this way. The idyllic image of peace and prosperity in the ancient Near East was to be able to sit under one's own vine and fig tree. Egyptian tomb paintings, Assyrian reliefs, and the biblical writers commonly used the phrase to refer to a people who control their own lives without foreign interference and are able to cultivate the land which the gods, or God, has given to them. The... The fig tree and the vine were sort of like an ancient Near Eastern version of the American dream. You know, a house, a white picket fence, two cars, and a big TV. But here the fig trees and the grapevines have been destroyed. And along with it, the people's sense of security, prosperity, independence, self-reliance, leaving them with nothing. It's interesting, as I read it this week, it struck me how much time we spend chasing and cultivating and caring for our fig trees, caring for our grapevines to build these symbols of our security and our self-reliance. I mean, so maybe it's a stretch for me theologically, but perhaps part of the reason that God allowed these things to be attacked, that, that, that the author includes these in this story, is to point out to us that while there's nothing wrong with fig trees and grapevines, God created them and said they're good, they can easily become gods in our lives. They can be the thing where the majority of our energy and time and effort go towards, where our security is found, where our sense of self is found. They can become idols. And for God, that's a sin. 
friend of mine sent me an article this week called The American Life is Killing You by Eric Rittenberry. It's a fun read. He writes this. If you're in the same boat as the typical American, your dilemma might look something like this. You're enduring some type of chronic illness, overstressed and rushed, unrewarding job, little or no savings, greatly in debt, fat mortgage, two vehicles in the driveway with a five or seven year loan on each, lots of gadgets and toys to keep you occupied, huge TV, little free time for yourself due to your career and a demanding spouse. That's not me, honey. Weekends filled with church and or senseless entertainment and a bathroom cabinet heavily stocked with pharmaceutical Tic Tacs to help cope with the emptiness of it all. This is probably you and it's okay. This is considered normal in America. You, you're a success. You've achieved the American dream. Your abundance and education and hard work have paid off. Congratulations. But the problem is that you're miserable and shallow and quite possibly unhealthy and a little dispirited and you'll likely die of either heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer, or suicide in the not-so-distant future, statistically speaking. And I thought Joel was dark. (laughs) And for some of us in this room, that rings true. If not for ourselves, for people in our lives, our family, our co-workers, who have it all, and for whom life is profoundly empty, and painful. The research on anxiety and depression certainly seem to bear that out in our culture. Perhaps we as a nation like Israel are in some ways living in the aftermath of our lifestyle. Israel had allowed their pursuit of self-reliance, their comfort, their security to become their gods. And God says that sin. And God used the locust effect to specifically strip those items away. And so here we are left with this book, this picture of the people left grieving all that was lost, but not just what was lost in the present. This damage went way beyond this year's crop. It says the trees and the vines were destroyed. The bark stripped off and laid on the ground, and the trees were made white and bare. If the bark is removed from a tree, there's almost no chance that tree will survive. And even if it does, the healing process is such that it would be rendered virtually fruitless for the rest of its life. See, the aftermath of the locust effect would have been long felt in Israel. Sin doesn't just steal our present. Sin steals our future. Sin wants to steal our hope. When we're in that moment, when we're living in the aftermath of the event, of the breakup, of the relationship, of the words you didn't want to say but said, it can feel like there's no future, no hope, no time beyond this present when we won't feel the shame and the hurt that we feel in this moment. Joel Joel points to that sort of pain and grief when he says these words. Next verse. Weep like a bride dressed in black. Mourning the death of her husband. It's a picture of, uh, that is unique to kind of the Hebrew literature uh, of this, this bride that has lost her husband. But the NLT doesn't actually capture sort of the nuance of the poetry. In the ESV, it says it this way. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. It's the picture of a young woman, a virgin who is betrothed to be married, engaged to be married. But before the marriage can be consummated... Her husband dies. 
And so beyond the grief of the moment, the grief of losing the person, the man that she loves, she's also grieving the marriage she'll never have. The kids she'll never have. The future she'll never have. Sin steals our future. The sense of desolation, feeling not only the pain of the loss in the moment, but also the hopelessness of not being able to see a way past that pain. When we're living in the aftermath, it's so hard to see a future. And we tend to bring so much of the aftermath with us into that future in the form of shame, in the form of the tapes that we play in our brains. And to that, Joel speaks. But he doesn't offer platitudes. He doesn't offer Christianese. He doesn't say, don't worry, I'm sure it'll all work out. He doesn't give out like bookmarks with Jeremiah 29:11 on them. Great verse, I'm just saying. Instead, he says these words, and they sound so harsh to our 21st century ears. He says, weep, mourn, lament, grieve. He says, yes, this is bad. Own your story. Face your story. Allow yourself to grieve and lament the hurt that you've caused or the hurt that others have caused to you. Don't try to numb it. Don't try to run from it. Don't try to pretend it's not there or justify it. Turn toward it. Face your story. Own it and grieve it. That's not a comfortable message for us in this day and age. But I think part of what we take from Joel is that we, when we are in the aftermath, we need people, yes, who will come and who will bring comfort and who will help us see that future. But we also need people with whom we are fully known, as we talked about last week, where we can bring our whole selves and our true selves, people who have earned the right to hear our story and then who have earned the right to kick our butt a little bit. Who have the right to say into our life, you know what? You're right. What you did was wrong. Let me help you learn to tell your story. Let me help you learn to see your story. Let me help you bring your story before God. A God who promises to be good. A God who promises to be slow to anger and full of mercy. Let me help you bring God your story. Because you see, bringing our story to God is hard when we're in the aftermath. It's hard to believe that God is good. It's hard to see God in those moments, in that wasteland, to believe that he's there at all. Because part of what sin does in our lives is that sin steals our connection to God. And Joel speaks to that as well in the very next verse, verse 9. He said, lament, so... For there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning and the ministers of the Lord are weeping. Again, this is poetic language. It's kind of cryptic. What does that mean? There was no wine and, and no grain. Was he part of the central part of one of their worship practices as the people of God was to bring before God these grain offerings and these wine offerings into the temple as part of their daily, daily rituals of worship. In fact, the people believed that these grain and wine offerings were a condition that God placed on them. That if they didn't have the offering, they didn't connect with God. So now they're in this place where there is no wine, there is no flour, there is no grain. There is no means of them to connect with God. When we're in the aftermath of the locust effect in our lives, we feel shame, we feel hopeless, we feel like God is so distant. The very means of us connecting with God in those moments 
seems so implausible. Joel describes this. He says, just as the locusts have removed the visual evidence of God's favor from our landscape, taking away the trees and the grain and the fruit and the flowers and leaving a barren wasteland, so sin strips away the spiritual evidence of God in our lives, like joy and fulfillment, a sense of God's presence. And we're left in a spiritual wasteland. We see this reflected in the words of the psalmist written centuries before. In Psalm 63, he says, O God, you are my God. I earnestly seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. It's a picture of someone writing their longing for God from an actual, literal wilderness. A literal desert wilderness. Where the evidence of God visually is so hard to see. But then listen to similar words from Psalm 42. Written from a spiritual wasteland. Living in the aftermath. As the deer longs for streams of water. So I long for you. Oh God, I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, where is this God of yours? Sin steals our connection with God and leaves us feeling like there is no present, there is no future, there is no hope, and there is no God. This is written from a spiritual landscape that's desolate and desperate and can't see and can't feel the evidence of God's presence in the aftermath. Well, here, Joel, written much later, uses very similar language to the psalmist when he, uses, when he writes these words. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's poetic language. We've read it before. It sounds familiar. And yet there's a strangeness to it. He says, the beasts pant. And he uses the same word that the psalmist had used in Psalm 63 and Psalm 42. But what do they pant for? Is it water? The beasts pant for God. Interesting. Right? I mean, throughout this book, it's really interesting to see the role that nature plays in the book. Throughout the book, Joel uses this anthropomorphic language and personifies the the, the fields and the trees and the goats and the sheep and even the brooks. In our English versions, you know, it kind of flattens out these words in the poetry to try to make it make sense. But in the Hebrew language, it would have been much more vivid. For instance, in English, it says something like, uh, the wine grapes have failed. But in Hebrew, it says something a lot more like, the grapes are ashamed. It says the cows wander around confounded and perplexed. The brooks cry out to God. He uses this very human language to describe these non-human beings. Why? I think in part, it's to illustrate that sin always has an aftermath. And I think one of the reasons we see these non-human actors described in human terms is to point out that the, the locust effect of sin damages and devastates everyone and everything in creation. Sin leads to devastation, whether it's sin in our own lives or the sin of others that affects us. Sin leads to devastation. Certainly the sheep did nothing wrong. The brook did nothing wrong. And yet they're impacted. All of creation is impacted by the locust effect. 
I think part of why Joel uses this human language for non-human beings is to say, if the brooks and the trees and the rivers and all of these things, the wild beasts of the field cry out to God, so certainly should the people of God cry out to God in this moment of desolation, this moment of aftermath. And according to Joel, that looks a lot like repentance. The book of Joel has two major themes. The first is that sin leads to devastation. Maybe not immediately, maybe not right away, but always. Sin is fun until it isn't, said Caitlin. Sin touches everyone and everything. Sin destroys relationships. Sin destroys creation. Whether it's our sin or the sins of others in our lives, sin always has an aftermath. That theme runs through the whole book. There's a second theme, a theme that we're going to spend the next two weeks on, a theme that has great power. Sin leads to devastation. Repentance leads to hope. That's a word that we also don't talk a lot about in our culture because we don't ever talk about sin. Why would we ever talk about repentance? And yet it is the major theme of this Old Testament book. He says these words, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar." Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. and Cry out to God. Cry out to God like the beasts of the field and the rivers. Cry out to the God who loves you. He says, own your story, face your story, face your sin. But then turn from your sin and bring it to God in repentance. Turn from your shame and cry out to God. Repentance, according to Joel, leads to hope. This first part of the book forces us to to face some hard and dark themes. But the key theme of this book, believe it or not, is hope, as you'll see in the upcoming weeks. First, the devastation of hope, but then the restoration of hope beyond the dreams, beyond the damage. And I'm guessing for some of us, that's really good news as we are living in these moments of aftermath. We'll see in this book that God's love is unconditional. But our experience of that love, of that hope, is conditioned on us turning away from our sin, from our own self-reliance, from our own broken systems of this world and crying out to God in repentance. Over the next weeks, we're going to dig further into what that looks like, what repentance means in our life, how we can experience in new and profound ways the hope and the restoration that Joel promised to Israel, but also to us. A promise to restore all that the locusts had taken away and so much more. What have the locusts taken in your life? What regrets and shame and pain are you carrying forward into today and into tomorrow? What stories play in your mind of that relationship, that decision, that evening that seemed to cripple you? To make it impossible to see a hopeful future? You're not alone in that. Many in this room and far more in our culture carry that level of burden with them on a daily basis, living in the aftermath. And in this series, in this moment, even right now, part of what we want you to do is to simply ask you to pause 
To not try to run from that feeling, not try to numb that feeling, not try to rationalize or explain or minimize that feeling, but instead to face it, to give it a name, to call to mind that moment, that decision, whatever it was, and to put it out in front of you. And right now, take that, bro- that broken relationship, that choice you made maybe years ago that still haunts you, that addiction that's crippling you that nobody knows about because you hide the bottles. The Bible says we can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us anything in us that is a barrier between us experiencing the hope and the restoration and the plan that God has for us. But only if we ask, only if we pause and then face it, own it, grieve it, weep. Not so that we would live in shame. This isn't self-blame. But rather so we can take that thing that we have named and hold it up to God. And say, God, I am done with this event. I'm done with this memory. I'm done with this hurt. I am done with this person having power over me. Take this that the locust has taken away from my life and make something new. Make something beautiful. Make something that reflects your glory in this world. We want to invite you to stay with us for these next couple of weeks. As we explore what that looks like. What does that look like in our context? We almost never have wine and grain offerings in our services. This is a very different context, yet there's so much we can draw from it of what it means to live not in shame, but in awareness of our need for God and his plan for this world. Let me pray for us in this moment. God, we thank you for your word. And even for the tricky hard parts, even for the parts that we don't want to face, that we don't like to face, Words like sin that seem so foreign in our culture and seem so disrespectful of others or or hurtful of others or shaming of ourselves. Words that we don't understand yet are so present in your word. God, we ask for wisdom as we try to process what that means in our lives, how we can live in your tremendous grace and yet be aware of our tremendous need. Forgive us for the times that we've gotten those backwards where we're so focused on on how horrible we are that that we've missed your your story. And yet, God, help us to not also overcorrect. Help us to be aware of our need. God, help us to repent and give you lordship over every area of our lives, including these areas in our past or in our present. God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Break the cycles of sin in our lives these patterns of sin that have been passed from generation to generation. God, break the cycles that keep us from experiencing you, from experiencing your hope, your restoration, your promise, that keep us living in the aftermath so that we might know your love, your compassion, your healing, your restoration. God, allow us to give all of you, even the broken parts. God, help us to make you truly Lord of our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.